I'm just a girl who can't say no. I'm in a terrible fix. I always say, come on, let's go, just when I ought to say nix. Does anybody know where that's from? Oklahoma. And that's Ado Annie, who plays a girl who can't say no, and men take advantage of her, however that would have been done in the 40s, uh, not necessarily like today. Um, but I sang part of the song, is some people are like Ado Annie, they can't say no. And they have employers who make them work nights and weekends. They have neighbors who make them do all kinds of stuff for them. They may have family members, siblings who get them to give money, whatever else. Uh, even in the church, sometimes church leaders or other people in church with high expectations. Um, one of the most common things that happens to me is I get a former counselee and they'll send a text, can I have five minutes of your time? And you're right, it's humorous. Um, I just multiply by 10. And the inability to say no can get you into trouble. You get overcommitted. You can get bitter. I'm tired of people using me. I'm tired of being a doormat. It can cause you to neglect other important responsibilities. A friend of mine put it well. It says, when you say yes to one thing, you're saying no to other things. And sometimes we say no to the important things because we said yes to the people who put pressure on us. Um, and so the book on boundaries, written by Cloud and Townsend, originally published in 1998, and they've had revisions ever since then, uh, there are also spin-offs on that, like there is the Love Languages book. It's sold several million copies. And even though there are other psychologists and counselors who talk about boundaries, I doubt anybody's sold as many books as they have. And they profess to be Christians. They use a lot of scripture in the book. And like the Love Languages, it really resonates with a lot of people. People say, I'm always doing stuff for others. I need some me time. I need to take care of myself. I'm tired of being used. Why am I always exhausted? Why can't I get stuff done? My to-do list never gets done. And now, in more recent years, again, decades after they originally wrote the book, we've had cancel culture. And in cancel culture, uh, you identify toxic people who are narcissists, and you cut them off. And so I need to set boundaries because my parents didn't raise me right, therefore I can't have a relationship with them is the most common problem now. And I know of cases, by the way, going both ways. I have friends in my generation whose kids won't talk to them. And I have kids whose parents won't talk to them. And this has become a solution that, again, you're harmful to me, you're toxic to me, you've hurt me, you drain me, therefore I'm having nothing to do with you. Uh, a common experience, I have a friend who's a pastor whose daughter in her early 30s decided that she was a man and was going to transition. And she announced to her several siblings and her parents, my name is now some male name. These are the pronouns you must use with me. And if you will not follow this, I will, you will be dead to me and I will have nothing to do with you. 
and lots of families are experiencing this right now with the LGBTQ issue um, and have some hard choices to make. And so my approach to this is actually similar to the approach to the love languages in that there is an element of truth. You know, they're identifying a real problem and there's an element of truth that we need to set limits on relationships and not just give in to the demands people make of us. Uh, but there's also a danger of this concept being misapplied in harmful ways. So if, if, you're, if you need to go, I'm going to tell you in one sentence everything I'm about to say, or if you want to take a nap, here it comes. Don't replace pleasing others with pleasing self. Instead, please God. Everything I'm going to say is just an expansion on that statement. Don't replace pleasing others with pleasing self. Instead, please God. Now, Ed Welsh has written a critique of the Boundaries book, just like David Pallison has written about love languages. And uh, his article was helpful to me. They well, what does the Bible say about boundaries? Well, the way that Cloud and Townsend and others use the word boundaries is not the way the Bible does. It's a metaphor they've chosen. I mean, in the Bible, the usual use of boundaries is literal physical borders between uh, political entities. And when I was reading through the book of Numbers, there's a boundary between this tribe and this tribe and this tribe and this tribe. Um, Proverbs 22, 28, do not remove the ancient boundary which your fathers have set. Um, in the temple, there was in a sense a boundary. Uh, Ephesians 2.12, remember that you were at one time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. And you know, there were, this is where the court of the Gentiles is. And only the Jews could go in here. And only the priests could go in here. Only the high priests could go in there. So there were sometimes physical limits. But when psychologists talk about boundaries, they're talking about it metaphorically of drawing lines figuratively, setting limits on relationships. Uh, Welsh would argue there are better metaphors than that and that there's a danger of it being misused as kind of the way we define all of our relationship. Um, and so, but I will acknowledge the Bible does set limits and encourages us to set limits. In a sense, God's law is meant to be a boundary on our behavior. You think in, in the garden, like don't eat of this tree. There wasn't a physical boundary, but it was a moral boundary. Don't eat this fruit. And then when they got kicked out of the garden, there was a boundary physically, right? He drove the man out of the garden of Eden. He stationed the cherubim in the flaming sword, which turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So there, there was a physical boundary. There was also a moral boundary. You know, in the law, don't worship other gods. Don't take God's name in vain, etc. Um, we know in the Bible that children need limits. A child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. So... Limitations are taught in many places in the Bible and even in the church. Um, church discipline. There's an inside and outside, like a boundary. Remove the wicked man from among you, it says in 1 Corinthians 5. Well, he's outside the boundary of the membership of the church. And then in the Lord's table. It's interesting, there's a term that many Reformed people have used. We say we fence the table. The fence like a boundary is that these are the people who can come to the Lord's table. These people are excluded by this figurative fence. Um, which 1 Corinthians 11 says that people should examine themselves and some should not partake. And then in general, holiness is to be separate from evil. 2 Corinthians 4, that you know, would, you know, don't be bound together with unbelievers. What do light and darkness have in common? Don't be yoked together. Come out and be separate. 
So, okay, uh, then what about the book? What about Cloud and Townsend's book? Is this something we should be passing out to the people we're counseling? You're going to not be surprised when you say, no, please don't pass it out to the people we're counseling. Now, some positive things about the book. They're both Christians. The book is much more explicitly Christian than the Love Languages book. I've actually read few books that used as much scripture. I'm going to get back to that. Uh, and the authors have identified real problems. I mean, one reason why it sells millions of copies is to say, yeah, that's in my life. I see that. And there is truth that we should place limits on relationship. And the book begins with a lady named Sherry who has no boundaries. And her life is just at the mercy of irresponsible co-workers who make her do her work, their work. Uh, an inconsiderate husband and children who don't respect her and you know, don't help around the house, selfish friends who take advantage of her, and even unreasonable church leaders who make her feel manipulated and miserable because they lay more and more on her that she doesn't feel like she can handle. And of course, at the end of the book, because the magic silver bullet has been applied, everything's wonderful. <laughs> She's drawn her boundaries and taken control. And that's part of the subtitle is like taking control of your life, which again should make you a little suspicious. Um, so if Sherry or someone like Sherry came to me as a biblical counselor, we would encourage her to make changes. Some of them might even resemble the book in what they would do in that, you know, allowing other people, again, it's people pleasing. The Bible warns against that. There are lots of warnings in the Bible against people pleasing. Proverbs twenty nine twenty five: the fear of man brings a snare but the one who trusts in God will be exalted. In Galatians 1.10, Paul says, am I trying to please men or God? You know, if I were trying to please men, you know, the Judaizers, he would have done differently. But the reasons for the changes would be different. And again, they say some true and helpful things. Children need boundaries. They need discipline. There's actually a very good section in the more updated one about boundaries for children with technology and social media. And you know, in terms of, the dangers of that and that parents should set limits. So we're, we're for that. Um, but again, the major concern, remember I said earlier, I've rarely read a book in which there was so much scripture. I've never read a book in which so much scripture was misused. It was painful. And it just seemed like any verse in the Bible that kind of sounds like what they're getting at gets reinterpreted to be about boundaries. Um, and so it's again this, moralistic, therapeutic, non-redemptive approach. Like John 16, 30, you will have trouble in the world. Well, people won't accept your boundaries. Um, your life is your responsibility because we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Proverbs 4, 23, watch over your heart with all diligence. Well, that means your life is your responsibility and you need to, your heart is your treasure, so you need to guard your treasure which is, again, protect. So it's just all of you. And, and so there's explicit statements that just the theology is really poor. Um, page 53 of the version I have. God has no interest in violating our boundaries. Okay, well, you guys are in sovereign grace. <laughs> I teach at Reformed Theological Seminary. If God doesn't violate our boundaries, we're all going to be dead. Um, another statement, in our deepest honesty and ownership of our true person, there is room for expressing anger at God. 
Anger at God is never justified. I'm not saying we're not tempted to be angry with God, but that's sin. Because God is perfectly righteous and has never done anything wrong. And then here's another. God will not violate our boundaries. He respects our no. He tries neither to control nor nag us. That's painful to read. And then like other pop psychology books, like Love Languages, they claim they've discovered the secret, the silver bullet that will solve every problem. It'll make marriage, church, work, kids, you know, friends. It's all going to be better. And, you know, that's why I say Sherry's like Ada Annie. She can't say no, and her life's all messed up, and she's miserable. Again, quote being the number one, here's a quote, the number one reason marriages fail is poor boundaries. I do a lot of marriage counseling, and that thought has never occurred to me. <laughs> the main reason marriages fail is because of sin. And then it's not because you haven't protected yourself enough. <laughs> it's because you haven't pleased God. Quote, I've never seen a submissive submission problem without a controlling husband. Now, by the way, it's nice. He even talks about submission. It's also you know, a book written decades ago, I guess. But um, there are other, you know, submission problems are not merely because of controlling husbands. They're also your desire shall be for your husband and he will rule over you. That you know, In Genesis 3, that you're going to be tempted to take over is what I think that verse means. And, and just like, uh, oh, another statement is, if, you know, basically if your church is not strong in teaching boundaries, you kind of need to find another church that is. And like Paulus instead of love languages, it just seems, seems so simple. At the end of the book, Sherry has this happy life. Everybody respects her boundaries, and it's all good. And it even says if people won't respect your boundaries, probably not worth having them in your life anyway. Um, this is another book that makes lots of assertions that are really not even backed up by psychological research, but it's kind of pop psychology by observation with some common grace truth to it, but it's not like some psychology books that claim to have done all this research. Um, biggest problem in my mind is it's very, again, it's all horizontal. It's man-centered. It moves from pleasing others to pleasing self. Um, you know, Second Timothy 3, the, the last day men will be lovers of self. And even, this is also a common thing, is the vertical really exists to help the horizontal. Yeah, God is there, the Bible is there, so that you can be happy on this level and get along with people, rather than we exist for the glory of God. Another statement, you own your own soul. Well, the Bible says you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. And here's another statement. Anger tells us our boundaries have been violated thus serving as a warning system telling us we are in danger of being injured or controlled. It energizes us to protect ourselves. Um, what does the Bible say about anger? James 4, we already quoted. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? You desire something, you don't get it, so you kill other people. Matthew 5, 21. If you're angry in your heart, it's murderous. It's, anger is not a righteous response. Well, it's not always. Sometimes it is a righteous response to evil done against, obviously, God. But most of our anger is just sinful. Sin just isn't a topic these books address very much, if at all. Um, there, I mean, if we're going to talk about anger, most anger is sinful anger. Another quote, you are responsible for getting your wants fulfilled. Here's, by the way, sounds familiar. You can't love others unless 
you have received love inside of yourself. Well, if he meant God's love, maybe, but that's not what they mean. Um, and then, you know, we do bad things because we're not secure that we're loved. Does this sound familiar, by the way? It's the same pop psychology. Um, they don't give sufficient attention to sin as the cause of our problems or redemption as the solution to our problems. You know, when we are sinned against, we sin back. And in their view, like if you're reading the book, you're an innocent victim who's entitled to protect yourself from other people harming you or taking advantage of you. I guess bad people who are selfish and sinners don't read the book. Um, and then even they approach... They, they recommend approaches in terms of 12 steps and group therapy and other things that biblical counselors have shown a lot more problems with. So Ed Welsh, in his critique in the Journal of Biblical Counseling, uh, the, his, one of his main critiques is this metaphor of boundaries is overused as kind of like this is the metaphor that's the interpreted grid for all of life. All of life is going to be explained by boundaries. Uh, now, metaphors aren't wrong. We use them all the time. The Bible uses them, right? Jesus is the rock. He's the light. He's the living water. Um, you know, my, my first car was a lemon. That's an illustration. Probably derogatory of lemons. Um, but there are better, you know, better biblical images. So he says, like most psychological theories, boundaries have kernels of reliable observation. But Scripture indicates there's a much more profound developmental task, how we can grow in wisdom, learn the fear of the Lord, and understand how God intends human life to be lived. Boundaries are not intended to be a dominant life-giving metaphor for relationships. We've got kingdom, bind, servanthood, biblical examples. And then the other part is that breaking down boundaries is actually fundamental to what the Bible teaches in redemption. We mentioned earlier the second half of Ephesians 2, where you were once separated from God and Christ has broken down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile and made us one people. Uh, the gospel itself is when God breaks down our barrier, we've tried to push him away, and he takes us from death to life. Uh, God encourages us to invite others to come into the church. And, and you see, so what is Jesus? The great commandment is not protect yourself by setting boundaries, it's love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And we're going to get in a few moments to you know, working those things out practically, and it can get a bit complicated. But that's how we regulate life. And, um, and so positively, how can we and our counselees set limits biblically? So their approach is in my view, too horizontal. But the Bible does give us guidelines for setting limits. Um, and there are guidelines for that. Again, first of all, guideline, foundation is our chief aim in life is not to be happy. <laughs> it's to glorify God. And that rules everything. And that actually makes a lot of the decisions in life really simple. How can I best please God with my time under these circumstances? And there are times when people will make demands upon us when it's clear that God wants us to say no. Now, Potiphar's wife tries to make a demand on Joseph, and he says, how can I do this and sin against God? So sometimes it would be sinful for us to capitulate to people. 
Um, and then our second priority is to love others. And that, that can get complicated. Uh, but there, there are times when our call is to sacrifice for others and not just to please ourselves. First Peter 4, 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Welsh writes, love patiently bears with the sins and weaknesses of others. And, and even in the church, it's not primarily about myself as an individual protecting myself. It's we in the body. Um, likewise in family, not to separate our interests from the rest. Now it's true that sometimes our loyalty to God will create division in relationships. And sometimes we may, when we choose the Lord, create hard divisions. Jesus said in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. In Luke 12, he had said that there will be in the family, three against two and two against three and you know, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and all the different combinations. And so in the way this is hitting our culture right now and the way that I imagine with families in your church and people you know who are believers, the way it's really hitting right now is the LGBTQ thing. I gave the example of my friend who's a pastor whose 30-something-year-old daughter says, I'm a man, you must use my pronouns. And I saw a blog that's like, son, I can't abandon my faith for you. That I can still love a homosexual child. I can still love a child that thinks they're transgender. But I can't capitulate to their worldview, which is often their demand for relationship. And when Jesus says you must hate father and mother, etc., I mean, it's meaning just like Jacob, I love Esau, I hated in Romans 9, that means you must choose God above them. And many Christians, dare I, I'm not, I don't like, well, they're not drawing the boundary. I mean, they're not setting the limit in the right place. And you see people who are professing Christians who will capitulate. And like, in my view, I could never attend a homosexual wedding. And the reason is that at a wedding, you're not just an audience, you're a participant. The people at the wedding are witnesses. A wedding, a marriage is a covenant made before witnesses. And when I perform a wedding, I'll explain, you're not just an audience, you're participants in this event to hold them accountable to keep this covenant they're making before God. And a man marrying a man or a woman marrying a woman is a travesty and an assault upon God's authority. And so I can't be there. I mean, I can have them over to dinner a week later. I might even make an argument if, you know, that was a thing, by the way, that came up recently with a famous preacher, right? Oh, go to the wedding, give a gift. I just can't do that. Again, I, I value my relationship. You know, if it's my grandchild or whatever, I value the relationship. But there can be times in life I have to choose God above that. And that may cause me to get canceled. And there are even political things now where if, if you're not progressive enough or conservative enough, I mean, people are canceling each other right and left. Um, I think we want to avoid doing that. Again, we want to still love and seek relationship with people with whom we differ. But if they demand that we capitulate to their worldview as a condition for relationship, we may end up being estranged. Romans 12, 18 says, as far as is possible with you to be at peace with all men. Well, there's an implication there. It's not always possible. And if, that, if, if, if having peace means surrender, 
then you may be estranged and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, I mentioned 1 Samuel 2.29 already where Eli had these wicked sons and his crime against God, his sin against God is you've honored your sons above me. We must honor God first above our family and our friends and that will sometimes create painful division. And then another aspect would be motivation. I've talked about, you know, man-pleasing. According to the Bible, seeking to please men, especially more than pleasing God, is a sin. And it's idolatry, in a sense, is that I want people to like me. I want, and this is like Sherry in the book, okay? She wants everybody to think she's wonderful. I need to be loved. I need to be appreciated. Uh, I need to feel good about myself, that I'm the kind of person that you know everybody loves and meets all their needs. And that can allow us, that can enable us to be manipulated. Um, the question is not, you know, I want this person to like me. I don't want to disappoint them. And so if I don't say yes, then I'm going to disappoint them and I can't stand it. That's selfish in its own way. I want to be liked. I want to be loved. I want to be appreciated. No, I want to please God. And sometimes my call to please God will force me to say no to the demands of others. Again, that can get complicated. But I think understanding the motive is very important. Again, man-pleasing is a sin, Proverbs 29.25. Living for the approval of people is destructive. It's going to lead you to more sin. So, general wisdom uh, for setting limits. And I, by the way, I'm reluctant, generally speaking, when I talk to people to use the word boundaries because that word now comes with all the baggage of the false teaching of the book. But you know, setting limits. Um, the Bible teaches there are some times we should endure intrusions, offenses, and inconveniences for Christ's sake. Romans 15, verse 1, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, for his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And so, in their times, we put up with difficult people who are draining. And, I mean, you see that in church, right? There are awkward people who need extra attention. None of them here, but they're out there, so don't see them tomorrow. And we're not getting anything from that, but bearing with them is part of what we do in the body. Now, also, the question is going to be, how can I wisely love this person? Um, allowing yourself to be manipulated and controlled is not always the loving thing to do. We've quoted Galatians 6 already. Sometimes love requires you to rebuke. Galatians 6.1, if someone's caught on a trespass, you are spiritual, restore him gently, look into yourselves so that you will not be tempted. 2 Thessalonians 3, if someone will not work, neither shall he eat. And in their time in the New Testament, and there's some people who their fear of man and their desire to please people prevents them from confronting sin when the Bible says they should. I don't want these people to not like me. They, they're conflict avoiders in a sinful way. There are times when you see wrong. And again, this is the way I deal with the question in my own heart would be, would God have me to address the sin? Is it my obligation and my understanding biblically 
to confront this person over their sin. And then I have to do it. Even though there's a risk that they will cancel me or not like me anymore. Would it please God? Or you know, I can't be pleasing to God if I don't do it. Another principle is that in terms of limitations is we're free to get away from people who endanger us. There are examples of that in the Bible. In, in Matthew 2, when Herod's trying to kill all the babies, you know, Jesus' family takes him away to Egypt so that they won't kill him. In Acts 9, Paul escapes people trying to kill him through the wall. Uh, in John 10, the crowd is approaching Jesus. I'll read this one. And it's not yet his time. And so it says, therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. And so, you know, this, by the way, is going to apply that if there's spousal abuse going on, one is free to get away from someone causing them harm. That's one of the most common applications of this. The Bible doesn't say you should stay always and take a beating or even let someone take advantage of you in other ways. Um, here's where it can be complicated, kind of relates back to our first topic on fathers, where I think I briefly mentioned that we had a lady come to us, married to a pastor, and as she was growing up, her older brother sexually molested her, and her parents kind of knew about it and looked the other way. And so now her parents and her brother say, we just don't remember anything. We don't know what happened. Maybe you're just not remembering what, which is often how these things are dealt with in families. Like, eh, you're probably just imagining something you were a child. Okay, does she have to go hang out with these people? I think she's free to say, you know, I've been so harmed by this and I've not been protected. Um, she's free to set a limit Another aspect would obviously be she now has children. So even if she chooses to be around them, I'm not going to leave those kids with those parents for babysitting. And so there can be times when legitimately we can set limits on relationships. Now, in the case of this lady, uh, she's made the choice to be around her family, obviously with her kids in sight, not to totally shun them, but to have a limited relationship with them. And God has given her grace to want to do that but I would not criticize her if she just said they're denying what was done to me and you know so things like that happen in the real world and so I think there can be a place to set limits um, another question in terms of limits in relationships is that what influence is this person having on you Proverbs thirteen twenty: he who walks with the wise will be wise and then a companion of fools suffers harm also in Proverbs, it warns about being, it says, don't be around an angry man lest you learn his ways. Don't be around uh, gluttons and drunkards or you'll become like them. And so I was supervising a case not long ago where a lady had professed Christ, but she had girlfriends that she'd go party with and they would drink too much and sometimes they'd hook up with guys. And um, part of her conversion is to find a new set of friends to find community with the people of God. And it's not that she can have no relationship with those people, but are those people say, well, let's just go out Friday, Saturday night like we always have and bar hop or whatever they do. No, you know, 
I can't be in that environment safely or even relationships with this person is pulling me away from the Lord, so I have to limit that relationship. Um, another example would just be a sense of your calling. We are finite, and so we can't do everything for everybody. Uh, an example in Nehemiah chapter 6, I think it's Sanballat, who wants to meet with Nehemiah while Nehemiah is working on the wall. And he says, I am doing a great work, Nehemiah says. I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? So just because someone asks us to do something doesn't mean we should always do it. Jesus walks away from crowds sometimes. Uh, we're, we're finite. We can't be all things to all people. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul says he, he leaves behind an open door of ministry that God had opened because he had a sense that his calling elsewhere was more important. Not everyone has an equal claim upon our time, our attention, and our resources. So we set limits. Now, this is a challenge I'm having in terms of counseling, is that I would say almost Almost every single day, Carolyn and I get requests for people all over the place who want to be counseled. I can't, we can't do all of that. And so we've had to say, okay, I'm employed by Reformed Theological Seminary. And there are a lot of, that almost could be a full-time job just counseling 300 seminary students. And so uh, like Thursday night before we came here, actually, there's a couple in distress, fairly newly married, and we met with them for, had them to dinner last minute because that's an immediate responsibility. Likewise, in our church, if people in our church need help, you know, that's right alongside, that's, we know that's what we're called to do. When someone four states away says, We've, I've heard of you, I read this thing you wrote, could you please get involved in my life at this level? I don't have the bandwidth to do that. Jesus didn't even have the bandwidth to do all the things everybody demanded that he do. And we have some other priorities in terms of um, if you will let a student watch the counseling, then you're at least fulfilling my goal of training students. So that would bump you up in priority. We also give some priority to pastors and wives. We do a lot of pastors and wives because so many people are affected by pastors and missionaries. And, uh, but you know, we, we need that. You know, Luke 4.42, Jesus went out to a solitary place and the people were looking for him. Um, and he, he left them. And so you know, Jesus did not have equally intimate relationship even with all 12 of the disciples, much less with all the over 100 who were following before. And so we have to set limits somehow. And this even gets back to I'm dealing with some young adults and our seminary student, and we've got a lot of single women in our counseling program. Sometimes they find MDiv students in a match made in heaven. But, you know, okay, here she's got a paper due in two days, and her friend says, hey, there's a concert. Do you want to come with me? Well, I can't say from the Bible you're not allowed to go to concerts, but I can say if the paper's due in my class, um, it may be that your calling right now, since you're paying thousands of dollars to be here, is to turn down a good thing for a better thing, given the limitations you have. And, it, again, the fear of man is, but I don't want to disappoint my friend, and I, don't, I want her to like me, and I want to know... I mean, you can still love a person and not always do everything they ask you to do because you, you have limitations. People who want to borrow money, family members who want to borrow money. That's a whole other subject as well, isn't it? Um, part of it is you may just be enabling financial responsibility and bringing destruction to your relationship with that family member. Um, 
you know, Paul in Second Thessalonians 3 deals with people who are irresponsible financially and don't work. And so don't capitulate. To, again, it's back to my summary at the beginning. Don't go from pleasing others to pleasing self, but to please God. Would it please God for me to help in this situation? Sometimes it would. And sometimes it would be a poor use of the resources given. So again, balancing. Um, beware of cancel culture going to the other extreme. Uh, the misuse of the boundaries book and concept even being, well, you know, if, if you won't acknowledge my transgender status, then you're committing violence against me and you're toxic and you're unsafe. Um, we don't want to go the other way either. We, we want to love others as best we can. And like I would even say, even if people have harmed you, can you send them a card? Can there be, you, know, you want to do as much as you can while maintaining safety rather than just writing people off and judging them. And then positively, we just like we need to say no to things that are not the priorities God has given us, we need to be sure to say yes to the most important things. Uh, God built into our lives rest and work. And so you know, Jesus sometimes went off to be alone to rest or to be communing with his Father. God has given us rest as part of life. And it requires planning. And this is actually something I see especially in people in ministry is there's not a clearly delineated this is when I'm going to rest on daily basis or a weekly basis um, because there's always more to do. There's always somebody else who wants to talk to you. There's always more study you could do, another email you could write. And there are a lot of our counseling with ministry couples now they're many years into marriage and even into ministry and the wife is deeply embittered because she's the margin that gets put aside and he's not been there for the kids and he's not been there for her. Back to Proverbs 21.5 from last night, the plans of the diligent lead to advantage. You have to plan time with your family. Again, so planning is, you know, so we talked about get control of your own life in the book. Well, that's on the pleasing self, but the idea of, Get control of your time and your life and your relationship so you can better glorify God. That's a biblical concept, not just giving in to wherever the pressure is. And so sometimes that means saying no to people's demands. I've told people in ministry that you put on your schedule time with your kids or time with your wife, just like you would put time for another appointment. And then if somebody says, can you do this now? I'll say, I'm busy. You don't have to explain. I'm, I do. Every morning I take a walk with my wife, which is what I do, except for this morning. <laughs> but almost every day we take a walk for an hour and we talk and connect and that's important for our relationship. And so if somebody else wants me, then I mean, obviously if somebody's dying, you go to the hospital. But you don't allow your life to be ruled by the demands other people make. Um, Another would be just not being enslaved to technology, which also can be a black hole of your time. And then I, I have examples of particular situations. I'm, I'm not going to go, I can't do all of them in detail. Um, but I will give one example that comes up, and it's actually in the little uh, How to Love Difficult Parents. Just an example I've seen sometimes in young adults, young married adults, is 
in-law conflict where his parents are expecting them every Saturday or every Sunday afternoon to come for dinner and to spend this time with us or even a level of control. I've seen situations, even a more drastic situation, where it's often his mother is very critical of his wife and the husband is always just kind of put up with his mother. He's not a very, he's a conflict avoider, but he did not marry a conflict avoider. And his wife is tired of being corrected and the mother-in-law comes in, oh, it looks like there's some dust here. And, you know, this isn't really the way you make macaroni and cheese. And, you know, on it goes and you're not doing the kids right or whatever. And sometimes the husband has to get up his courage maybe for the first time in his life and confront his mother lovingly and just say, um, you can't speak that way to my wife. You need, you're damaging our relationship. And there can even be limits. I have a friend whose father-in-law was very angry and critical. And one time he drove his family hours to spend time with his in-laws. And the father became very harsh and angry and belligerent, my friend put his family back into the car and drove home. And his view was, several hours drive, it's just like his view was his duty to God to protect his family from this evil. Um, it wasn't that they never tried again, but part of it was if you're going to spend time with my family, you have to respect how we need to treat each other. And, and so these things happen. And I could go on, you know, dating relationships. Uh, you know, some women especially capitulate to a man who is persistent and yet may not be godly. And so to, to set standards based upon the word of God and, and to follow those standards even if. And I, again, I, I, I listen to, when my students are doing their counseling, they make recordings of the counseling and I listen and I just, I remember an example actually where there was a girl in college and my female student in her 20s, mid-20s is counseling this 19-year-old. The 19-year-old has a boyfriend who's putting pressure on her to do things sexually, maybe not everything sexually, but too much sexually. And she actually said, I just don't want to hurt his feelings. I don't want to lose him. Those are really bad reasons. For that matter, dump the bum is be my advice. But, you know, that again, she's more concerned about pleasing him than pleasing God. And it's a very simple paradigm. So, boundaries, like other attempts to integrate scripture and psychological principles, sometimes can describe a problem, but their understanding is inadequate because they don't bring a biblical perspective of sin and our focus upon the glory of God. And their solutions tend to be more horizontal and man-centered rather than, uh, you know, yes, the Bible does define how we set limits. So back to my summary, in case you're waking up here now at the end, that don't go from pleasing people, which is a huge common problem, why people live foolishly, including the lady in the book, Sherry. But don't go from being Edoani or Sherry, pleasing people, to pleasing self, but instead to please God.
that's the paradigm you're working through. And you need wisdom sometimes. It's not always do this, do that, but at least you're processing limitations you set on relationships from that biblical perspective and not being controlled by others.